You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. you to turn to Revelation 2 this morning. Revelation 2, and we'll look at verse number, uh, start reading in verse number 12. We have talked about the founding of the church, where and when and who, uh, concerning the founding of the church itself. We looked at the disciples and apostles and potentially where many of them spread out and went to during their early ministries and how many of them died. We looked at the first couple centuries, really, of the church. And there's so much in there that we just don't know about. But this first couple centuries of the church was marked by that of persecution. And if we were to follow along with this idea that Revelation 2 and 3, these seven letters to the seven churches, was dealing with seven church ages, which I'm, I'm still not, I mean, I'm not sure whether I... Uh, go with the seven church age idea. But, you know, you have the church of Smyrna, which was certainly the persecuted church. Uh, and it, that's how it is described there in verses 8 through 11. But following that, in verse number 12, we read about the church of Pergamos. Look what it says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast denied my faith. One of the marks here of this church is that they hold the name of Christ. In other words, they call themselves Christian. But they have denied his faith. They have rejected that which is crucial to being a Christian, namely the gospel. Notice also that they are where Satan's seat is located that Satan is using it. We continue on. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, this idea of where Satan dwelleth isn't necessarily just referring to the church, but the area there in Pergamos. It was such a wicked, terrible area. Now, we see the martyrdom of a faithful man named Antipas um, in this area. He says, but I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And we're going to see here two different doctrines. There's the doctrine of Balaam. It says, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Pause. So we have the doctrine of Balaam, which he is accusing them of at least allowing in to the church. And it, not just even allowing in, but allowing it to take root and have an anchor within the church. And notice what the accusation is. The doctrine of Balaam who taught, you know, who could a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols 
and to commit fornication. The doctrine of Balaam or Balaamism is worldliness, allowing worldliness to enter into the church so that the, the church was more and more like the world. What, what's going on here? A stumbling block before them. They were walking in faithfulness. They were walking in uprightness, but then something was put into the path to cause them spiritually to stumble and fall, many of them to fall. What is it then that comes into our lives which causes us to trip over and fall or stumble spiritually? And sometimes we end up stumbling for a time, like, like a drunk person trying to walk down a, si a perfectly level sidewalk but still trips over a stick and stumbles for 16 or 18 steps before he finally falls. Sometimes Christians can stumble and stumble and stumble and stumble and eventually fall if they don't get a hold of something solid. What is that thing that comes into our path that causes us to stumble? Oftentimes, it is sin that enters into our life via worldliness, via worldly influences that we have allowed to be in our life. And it becomes a stumbling block to us. Oh, it may not cause us to fall right away, but we trip over and we stumble and we lose our balance for a time until it takes its toll on us spiritually and we fall. Balaamism is worldliness. And so worldliness began to creep into the church. And, and, and when we think of worldliness, we have a tendency to think of the way the world dresses, the music the world listens to, the, mo the movies the world makes. And we tend to think of it that way, and that's true. But it all, we also need to look at it in another aspect, that the, the church wanted to have its hands in the world, and the world wanted to have its hands in the church, and the separation of church and state was null and void. And so this begins that time around A.D. 300 where the church and the state become one. And while that might sound like a good thing, it might sound like, imagine if Baptist churches all around the United States were to able to gain control of the government and were to be in line. And so all the governors and all of the state senators and, and congressmen, if we were to have control... That might sound like a good thing, or let me, let me put it a different way, I guess. Imagine that all of the governors and, and you know, political leaders were to say suddenly, like many of them do, you know, we're Christian, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Bible. That might sound good at first, and for a short period of time might even do our country good. But money and power corrupt and that it often, almost always happens. And that money and power is going to take that person who is a Christian and is going to corrupt them. And that's what happened in AD 300 when Rome, via Constantine, we'll talk about him in a little bit, uh, decided to make Christianity the state religion. And suddenly Christianity became or came in vogue. You know, it was suddenly popular. It was suddenly the thing to do, the thing to be. And they began to mix in other religions. They began to mix in the cultures. They began to mix in the worship and the form of the Roman religions with Christianity because it was the popular thing to do. If you have an empire which covers many different lands and many different religious systems, you need to somehow maintain control over all of those lands, all of those territories, and recognizing their religions is a good way to do it. And so now that you're switching over to Christianity, you have to, have to mingle those things, like, like the Catholics did in, uh, in uh, not Papua New Guinea. They might have done it there too, but I'm trying to think of Haiti. Uh, like they did when they went and planted churches in Haiti. Uh, Haitian 
religion is full of voodooism, uh, full of paganism. And what did they do? They mixed voodooism with Christianity. So you would still have Jesus and you would still have the cross and you would have that, but you would also have, you know, tearing the heads off of chickens and sprinkling the blood uh, to be able to cleanse things or purify things. You would, they mixed the two so that it would be more palatable to the people in Haiti when they first got there. This is worldliness within the church. We need to consider that idea of when we don't separate church and state. So we see, we see the doctrine of Balaam. We also see uh, verse number 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? This is the idea of the clergy or the religious leaders ruling over the layman. The idea uh, which in, in a you know, independent church like ours, an independent Baptist church like ours, is not to be. I'm, I am not to rule over you in that sense. I am not your boss. I am not a dictator. Uh, that's not how things work around here. That's not how they're supposed to work. The doctrine of Nicolaitans was this new idea that began there in the, around the 300s where there had to be some sort of a hierarchical system. How did that hierarchical system come to be? Well, this as I said, we were going to get into is the rise of apostasy. It was around the, the, the beginning of the 300s. The devil had been trying for the past 200 years to wipe out the church using persecution. He was unable to persecute the church. He was unable to spill all of their blood. He was unable to burn all of the scriptures. So instead of that, we move into apostasy. He just simply wants to render them useless by causing them to err. One of the first things that happened was a gradual change in first in I'm sorry in church government. There was a, a notion of a universal church during the third century. In fact, this idea of an invisible church, which is what the term Catholic means, um, was first recorded by somebody named Hegesippus, uh, who was a Jew who had gotten saved. He was an early church historian. He used the term during the second century as a reference to um, a universal doctrine that is, you know, held by the church concerning, you know, uh, as a reference to, you know, Christians throughout the world. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, we, we see the term church used as like the bride of Christ. And in that sense... Um, it is referring to all of the churches that we will, you know, be there as the bride of Christ at that wedding supper, at that wedding feast. It isn't going to just be Shenandoah Baptist Church. But when the New Testament refers to church, often you see a plural term used there, churches, because a church is supposed to be a unique and individual body of believers like this. It, it isn't referring to all of the churches all across the world at any given point with all of the believers being a member of that. Who then is the pastor, the bishop, the elder? Who then are the deacons of that church? Uh, how, are they how is that, that pastor ministering then to the needs of the, the members, the body? How then is the body operating and working together in unity, in unison? A universal church does not make sense. I cannot just be a member of a universal church and please the Lord. 
he was the first person recorded anyways to talk about this idea of a universal or invisible church. However, some leaders began to push this belief because so many of the New Testament churches, they had so much faith in common, they, had, they felt like they had to organize. In fact, especially since there was a renewed vigor to persecute you know, Christians, they thought if we organize ourselves, then it's going to make it more difficult for Rome to persecute us. And so they began to form organizations. They separated terms such as um, you know, elder and bishop. Um, they separated these terms and made them separate ranks, whereas in the New Testament, they're synonyms. The pastor is the elder. He's also the bishop. Uh, these were synonyms. They weren't meant to be separate ranks like military ranks. Well, but this is what they begin to use, and they begin to organize themselves in such a way. Well, if you want all churches in, let's say, around the Mediterranean area or in one country even, uh, to be able to work together, then you've got to have some control over the doctrine that they are teaching to make sure that no one is apostatizing. Sounds good at the outset. It's like saying, hey, listen, we need to form a group of all the independent Baptist churches in Virginia because we want to make sure that nobody is going off into some heretical doctrine. We want to make sure of that. Okay, sounds good at the outset. But what happens when the top apostatizes? What happens when the leaders are heretics? What happens when the money and the prestige and the power that they have goes to their head or causes you know, other people use that against them to change them, to twist them? Then we have a top-down heresy, which is what we see throughout you know, history. And so they formed this hierarchy rather than being independent as we were supposed to be. Christianity became more and more secular. These councils, these bishops, especially in larger metropolitan areas, gained more of an influence because they had the larger churches. They had a greater following and more influence. They would bring in all of the other bishops you know, from the area to meet at their meeting uh, their association, and therefore they began to get power. The problem was, again, what if this person was corrupt? This concept is at odds with the New Testament, that each church is to be autonomous. And, and there are a couple of passages you could look at there. It would be like Colossians 2.8 and 2 Corinthians 8.19 and verse 23 talk about you know, the local church and what it's supposed to be. However, these local churches ended up being lorded over by somebody else. This was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, where the clergy lorded themselves over the, the rabble, you know, the commoners. It is from this mindset that also came the idea that we could not understand the Word of God all in and of ourselves, that only the, the most educated elite, only those who were the closest to God, that they were the only ones who could really understand what the Bible said, and so everybody else relied upon them to be able to teach it to the common man. Thus, the Bible was kept out of the common language. It was kept back in Latin for hundreds of years, even though fewer and fewer, and eventually nobody spoke that language. Still, they wanted to keep it in that language because then only the religious elite 
would have access to scriptures and they could say whatever they wanted to say, it said. Because who was going to argue with them? There was nobody in the church that was going to be able to argue with them. We'll get more into that later. Another factor that contributed to the rise of apostasy was a gradual change towards um, the ordinances, an attitude towards the ordinances, such as baptism and the Lord's table. Remember, when Christianity begins to spread and becomes popular, there were other religions that had these fancy-smancy you know, ceremonies. And so their priests would wear all these special robes and their priests would do all these special things. And, you know, people like ceremony. People like that sort of thing. I've met, talked to several people that, you know, I've visited, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, Roman Catholic churches or, uh, you know, higher Protestant churches because they like the ceremony. They like the robes and the pomp and the circumstance and the music and, and how everything is, is organized in such a way. That came to be for a reason because they were copying that the Roman um, you know, priests that, that were worshiping other gods, they were copying what they were doing in their services and their ceremonies, and they brought it into the church. They, they were trying to sanctify what their ceremonies were doing and using it to worship God. And so the few things that, that we are taught to do, like baptism, and the Lord's table. I mean, biblical Christianity doesn't have a whole lot of ceremonies, does it? It doesn't have a whole, there's no indication to us as to robes. I mean, Jews of the Old Testament, the priests were told what to wear, what to do, how to do it, and they were given very specific rules as to how they were to operate and officiate their ceremonies. They were God-given ceremonies that everybody else copied. Everybody else copied God's you know, in, you know, information that was given to them you know, back in, in Genesis and in the first five books of the Bible. All of the other nations around them in the worship of their gods copied Israel. That's, that's how they got all of their, their ceremonial worship of their gods. But when it came to the church, we were not informed that we had to, to meet and worship on the Sabbath day. It was never told us to do that. In fact, the church has always met on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week. Uh, you know, to celebrate the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. We were never told to, to honor the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Uh, we were never told to uh, sacrifice goats and lambs. We were never told to go to the tabernacle or to the temple. In fact, the veil was rent, thus making the temple or the tabernacle itself useless at that point. Uh, thus making the sacrificial system useless at that point because Jesus Christ was that final blood that was shed. So the, to the church, we were never given instructions to keep any of those ceremonies or any of those feasts that the Jews still observe. And not that it's a sin to observe any of those feasts. I mean, it's good for us to remember, um, you know, the Passover. It's good for us to remember, um, you know, the, the Feast of Tabernacles and the, the reason behind it. It's good for us to remember those things as Christians because, you know, that is, in a sense, part of our heritage. It's, it's scriptural. It's biblical. They were supposed to remember what God did for them. The Jews were, and it's good for us to remember those things too. But we ought to recognize it just for what it is. It is a time for remembrance, like Memorial Day or Veterans Day or thing like that. It's a, it's a time for us to, to stop and think and remember what God has done and the promises that God has made even to us as a church 
and that he will still keep those things. But those um, rituals that they were going through, they evolved, some of them into teaching tools uh, to teach Christian truths through baptism and whatever. Um, it became popular to, to bless the waters of baptism before the, the candidate for baptism would enter down in there. That way they could drive out any evil out of the water, uh, which we know is, is nonsense. The water is H2O. Uh, is exactly what it is, and, and it might have some chlorine or fluorine in it, depending on where you got it from. It might have some sulfur in it if you're you know, down by the riverside. Uh, but we know that there's nothing like that. They would sometimes even put salt on their head after immersion to, to show that they're supposed to be the salt of the earth. Well, we can see the biblical connection there that we're supposed to be salt. But does putting salt on somebody's head make them salt of the earth? Does it somehow give them any sort of special blessing? Well, no, in so much as, you know, when we observe the Lord's table, you know, drinking of the cup and eating of the bread doesn't actually give me any kind of salvation or sacrament. It doesn't give me any kind of special blessing. It doesn't give me a higher rank or, you know, make me closer to God in that sense. It's a time of remembrance is what it's supposed to be. So sometimes they would use them as a, as a time to teach. Even they would give them a cup of milk to drink afterwards, reminding you know, them that they are to be you know, um, receiving the sincere milk of the word. But even the ordinances begin to be viewed as having a, a sacramental or a salvation, a saving value. That baptism would wash away sins or what will be taught and what is taught in, in even many Protestant churches today is that, that baptism as a baby doesn't remove all sin, but just original sin. What is original sin? Uh, that, that sin nature that you're born with. So original sin that was passed down to you through Adam and Eve through your parents. They would teach that when you're baptized as a baby, sprinkled, that is, uh, because babies can't hold the breath underwater, uh, which is probably why sprinkling came to be. I would have come up with a, a more interesting way, I think, if it was me. But uh, to sprinkle them, that, that it removes their original sin from them. So they're kind of saved, you know, in that sense. Uh, and they don't have to answer for that. Now all I have to answer for is what occurs from that day forward, which is also where the idea of purgatory came from as well. I'll get to that in just a little bit. Justin Martyr said this, and you've no doubt heard his name. I talked about him last week. Um, but listen to what he said. Justin Martyr lived from 80, 100 to 165. He said, the baptismal is called also illumination because those who receive it are enlightened in the understanding. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. The candidate for baptism is washed in the name of the triune God and having prayed for the forgiveness and pardon of sins, it transplants into a new, into a new existence and without it, listen to this, and without it, there is no salvation. So even as far back as 8100, or well, if that's when he was born, let's say 8160 maybe, even as far back as, as the hundreds, you know, apostasy had already worked its way into to, to baptism. The baptism, because they wanted, they liked the ceremonialism of it. They didn't want people to just neglect it as if it was unimportant, but the baptism had something to do with salvation. Without baptism was not salvation. The shepherd of Hermas, he said this, he, he died in AD 140. He says, there is no other repentance than this, that we go down into the water and receive forgiveness of our past sins. Now, these statements, obviously, we would take great exception with. That, 
you have to be baptized to be saved. But apostasy entered in. But apostasy doesn't just enter in for no reason. Uh, you have to be able to recognize where and how it is coming in and also recognize the fact that when you begin to err in one way, in one doctrine, it never, ever, ever stops in that one place. Because to change one doctrine, all doctrines, all the important doctrines of Scripture rely upon one another. When you change one, when you move one stone out of place, it will move every other stone. Every stone has to shift in order for this new placement of one stone to make any sense. If our sins were washed clean by baptism, then what about all the, the young children who die without uh, the administration of baptism? Without the, the cleansing of their original sin, are they still, are they lost? Well, we continue on. The Lord's table was also given as a, as a, as a sacramental value. And even today in some quote-unquote churches, they teach that you need to have your last rites, uh, that you need to uh, be able to have that last cup and that last bread in order to make yourself stand right before God. came to be believed that it could actually keep you saved. It also came to be believed that the um, grape juice and the bread became the blood and the body of Christ when you ate them. Uh, that was called transubstantiation. It was taught in the Roman Catholic Church that it literally turned into the blood of Christ and turned into the body of Christ uh, through the liturgy that was associated there with communion. In other words, a uh, special incantation that uh, the priest would say in Latin would literally turn it into the body and the blood of Christ. This doctrine uh, was defined by Pope Innocent III in 1215. It had already been in practice for several centuries prior to 1215 uh, before that. So what about purgatory? Purg purgatory came out of necessity. If you believe in the doctrine of original sin and that uh, if a baby is sprinkled when they're born and that removes original sin... Um, what about those who didn't follow the rules afterwards? So they were baptized as an infant, but they didn't follow the rules. The original sin had been dealt with, but what about all the sins they committed during their adult life? Well, the Latins came up with the term limbus perorum, uh, a middle place where there the sins of the dead could be atoned for. This is where we get the term purgatory. So the dead themselves, they would be in this purgatorial place um, and they would be purged by fire, um, and that would help pay for their sins of their life for a time. And once they paid for it, then they could go on to heaven. Or others who were living could give money to the church, could pray rosary uh, the, through the rosary beads to help their dead loved ones be able to make it uh, from purgatory into heaven faster. You could also pre-purchase before you died if you wanted to um, pre-purchase and, and give money to the church uh, to help shorten your time, you know, during purgatory. Where any of these doctrines came from, it was clearly not from Scripture. It was extra-biblical. It was something that maybe some far-flung churches or central churches began to practice. It may also just be something that one of the leaders in the hierarchy began to practice and was eventually recognized. It's paganism is what it is. 
It had been first suggested by Clement of Alexandria in the 3rd century. It was promoted by Augustine in the 4th century, and it became official church dogma in 1439 at the Council of Florence. So it was believed for centuries before it was finally made church dogma or doctrine. We'll continue on in, in talking about some other, um, what's the word I'm looking for, divisions of, of bad doctrine that came throughout time. Uh, sale of indulgences, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about other areas where the church uh, departed away from truth as time went along. If you have any questions, do let me know. I'll try to answer or find somebody who can. But. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.